Welcome to this week's Market Commentator podcast, MoneyWeb's series of interviews with investment professionals. Our guest this week is Nadir Token, investment strategist at 27.4 Investment Managers. Nadir, it's good to have you with us. Now, 27.4 is a multi-manager. Tell us a little bit about what that means and how that differs uh, to a regular asset manager. Yeah, thanks, Hannah. Thanks for having me. So a multi-manager, in essence, instead of going out directly into the market and buying securities, we invest in underlying fund managers. So what our time day in and day out is spent doing is doing asset allocation research. So how much do you want to have in local equities? How much do you want to have in local bonds? How much do you want to have offshore? Um, you know, And then looking for the best asset managers within those asset classes and blending together a variety of asset managers of different investment styles, different investment philosophies and processes um, you know to build specific building blocks so for example within the SA equity building block we'll typically have two to three asset managers within the offshore equity building block uh, we'll typically have an array of managers um, within the global listed property building block we'll have one to two asset managers and a similar kind of scenario in the in in the local and offshore fixed income building block so essentially our the, the majority of our time is spent on asset allocation research and and, and or asset allocation research and manager research. So um, being in the correct asset class at, at, at the right time and then uh, picking the, sp- the, the value that's going, or, or the style rather, that's going to be in fashion um, or in vogue over, over a particular period of time, over an extended period of time, depending on where markets are trading with regards to multiples or markets are trading with regards to macroeconomic variables. And that all contributes towards the asset allocation research as well as uh, you know which fund managers you want to have exposure to? Do you want to be exposed to a value fund manager? Do you want to expo- be exposed to a growth fund manager, a momentum fund manager? And, you know, typically those are very large determinants of returns. And, you know, that's why we believe um, the multi-management investment process works to give you long, uh, longer term, better risk-adjusted returns because you're not taking a view on one specific style, one specific manager, um, you know, which can tend to be fairly polarized over any given point in time. So, for example, leading up to 2016, I'm talking about excluding year-to-date. If you're a, a value fund, man- equity fund manager in South Africa, quite clearly you would have battled. Uh, whereas if you're a growth fund manager, you would have done phenomenally well. And that's flipped around really quickly into 2016. So, the premise of multi-management is don't put all your eggs in one basket, you know, diversify your exposure across multiple styles, multiple investment processes and philosophies. And in doing that, you achieve superior risk adjusted returns over a long period of time. I think you have alluded to it, but broadly speaking, what is 274's investment philosophy? So, you know, I think it's, it's, it's again, uh, the power of diversification. So the only free lunch you get in finance is diversification. So we're not only diversified uh, by asset class, or by, but we're also diversified by fund manager. And, you know, it comes back to the idea that not every single fund management house can be good at every single asset class. So typically what you tend to see happening is that um, asset management houses have a, have a flagship product, which they're very famous for and which they're very, very good at. Uh, typically, it's either equities or fixed income income or offshore. And our idea, the idea behind our investment philosophy and process is one, asset allocation drives in excess of 90% of investment returns. So getting your asset allocation call right is first and foremost the most important part to delivering long-term investment performance. And uh, given that all our time is spent on asset allocation and manager research, um, you know, we believe that that, that gives us a, a, a much greater probability of getting the asset allocation calls correct at the right period of time. So for example, being all 
offshore for the last three years. Um, you know, that w- was quite clearly the right asset allocation call to make or being underweight fixed income. You know, that's severely that's severely changed over the last six months, but I'm talking generally over the last three years. So our, our premise is basically based on the greater the level of diversification, um, you know, the better. And you're not exposed to the, the risks of a single asset management house. You know, um, you, you can pick the best fund manager, the best of breed fund managers within each asset class, number one. And you can blend together different styles and philosophies within an asset class uh, to give you more stable, better risk adjusted returns, which compound into a, great, a, a better result over a long period of time. You've made a very compelling argument uh, for the multi-manager approach, but presumably there are some downsides to the strategy. Off the top of my head, I could think perhaps returns are watered down Mm. because they're so widely spread Mm. and so significantly diversified. What are some of the downsides of this strategy? Yeah, look, I mean, you know, I think if you're looking to be the best performing fund manager over very short periods of time, all the time, you know, multi-management investment process and philosophy is clearly not going to work. But then, you know, the argument is that there's no single fund manager that can be the best performing over every single time period. And, and, and you know, that's why the multi-management process makes sense. So, for example, if we're in a very value-orientated market like we have been so far this year, we've seen the mining stocks come back very, very strongly, um, you know, we've seen the bond market come back fairly strongly in that kind of an environment. Um, you know, typically value fund managers have tend to be very concentrated in that area of the market. And they've taken a lot of pain for three to five years. But, you know, their view has come through in a very strong way in the last six months. You know, so typically when markets tend to be very polarized and very sentiment driven, as opposed to being driven by valuations or economic fundamentals or, you know, business fundamentals, quite frankly, um, you, you're going to find individual strategies which are going to outperform a multi-management process but it's not about getting it right all the time consistently over short periods of time you know it's about uh, being consistently in the top quartile and or and 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 that results in superior long-term risk adjusted performance as opposed to being top quartile fourth quartile fourth quartile first quartile second quartile so it's about being consistently there or there about which which compounds your returns over a long period of time so i think to answer your question, typically uh, in market environments which are very polarized over the short term, you could find uh, single strategy uh, products outperforming a multi-managed product if the market, uh, if the market environment uh, which that fund manager focuses on is in vogue. So, for example, value at the moment or growth for the last three years. Right, there we go. Let's talk a little bit about Brexit. Now, markets, of course, still reeling uh, from the aftermath of that announcement on Friday. Policymakers, analysts, economists kind of all trying to figure out what this means for the UK and certainly for the global economy. Arguably, it's too soon to tell exactly what it means. But having said that, uh, what is your view on Brexit and what Brexit means for equity market returns here in South Africa? Yeah, look, so I think we've got to take a couple of steps back. You know, I, I agree with that. It's probably too early to tell the full impact of what, what Brexit is going to mean. Um, you know, the, the, the policymakers are talking about the UK actually only leaving the EU um, in the beginning of 2019. So in that period, there's going to be a lot of negotiations. Mm. And I think particularly what the aim of those negotiations are going to be is going to be predominantly focused on keeping uh, the beneficial trade agreements in place because those are obviously mutually beneficial between the EU 
EU and the UK, both the EU and the UK benefit off of those. And, you know, if any, if you were following the, the, the Leave campaign, um, you know, it was really centered around immigration and the free movement of people, you know. So I mm. think that's going to be the one significant change. Um, but I think the, the, the big part with regards to the economics of it is that businesses are undoubtedly going to put on hold investment spend, um, you know, over the short to medium term. And that's really going to be the crippling effect on economic growth. Now, in an environment where we already have very benign economic growth, both locally and globally, um, and we have stocks trading on above average multiples globally, I wouldn't quite say in, in, in horridly expensive territory, but certainly above average multiples. And in the South African context, well above average multiples, um, you know, a low growth environment coupled with uncertainty resulting in businesses hoarding cash as opposed to spending is clearly not good for future returns. And, you know, that's what we've seen being reflected in equity prices over the last couple of days. Obviously, movements have been very drastic and it's pricing in um, a lot of volatility and a lot of fear. And, you know, whether it's going to be as bad as that, I think only only time can tell. I think, you know, a, a sell of, of this magnitude surely must um, present some opportunities. Um, you know, not, not, not all these businesses which are sold off aggressively are necessarily very correlated to whether the UK remains within the EU or not. So, you know, that must surely present some opportunities. Um, you know, and if one looks at that, a business like Old Mutual has obviously come under a lot of pressure. Um, a business like British American Tobacco has come under a lot of pressure. And quite frankly, they derive most of their revenue um, outside of the UK. So in fact, a, a depreciating pound um, is good for those companies, just like a depreciating rand is good for rand hedge stocks listed on the JSE. Um, you know, so I think the biggest impact is going to be on global economic growth with corporates not willing to spend the cash on their balance sheet. Mm. And that's not creating a conducive environment uh, for top line growth in earnings, Hannah. And I think that, that that's predominantly the greatest concern at the moment is how is the equity PE globally going to unwind without, um, you know, strong support for top line earnings growth. And that's why we've seen the reaction we have uh, predominantly within the, U- within the European and UK markets and focused within, um, you know, banking stocks in those regions, but broadly, um, you know, sell off across the world. And I, I think that's really what the concern is at the moment. Where is the earnings growth going to come through for the PE unwind to come? And this is definitely not supportive for economic growth and top line earnings growth into the medium term. You mentioned the fact that widespread sell-offs uh, in equity markets will lead to buying opportunities. You're not the first person to mention that. A number of analysts saying, hang on, uh, these kinds of sell-offs mean that we can buy assets at attractive prices. Mm. Uh, you mentioned Old Mutual and uh, BAT. Where do you think those buying opportunities are likely to be other than in, in those stocks? Yeah, look, I mean, it's it's fundamentally about who can deliver s- sustainable long-term earnings growth. And, you know, I think there's a number of those uh, stocks, uh, you know, on the JC which can do that, but we're trading on very demanding multiples, you know. So a lot of the good quality was already embedded into share prices. So if you take, for example, a lot of our Rand Hedge industrial stocks, they're great quality businesses. We know this about Steinoff, you know. We know that uh, they on a, on, on, on a big drive to uh, expand markets margins across their businesses and we see them going on an aggressive acquisition spree um, across Europe and you know essentially that acquisition spree is one about becoming a large-scale discount retailer so their procurement um, enables them to uh, achieve you know great discounts in their procurement which is margin accretive two they want to acquire their entire value chain and at each point in the value chain um, eke out margin and you know anecdotally if you relate that uh, to their furniture business um, you know they want to own everything from the forest to the 
logistic company transporting the wood from the forest to the manufacturer to the end retailer and at each one of those points they want to eke out a little bit of margin we've obviously seen given Steinos focus on Europe we've seen a, an, an aggressive correction in the share price um, you know I think the UK exiting the EU is not necessarily that much of a big deal for, for, for Steinoff but what would be a big deal is if Europe fundamentally breaks up so if France then calls for a referendum and if the Dutch and if uh, Eastern Europe and if you know and, 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 and if the Germans then call for a referendum that would be harmful to Steinoff's business but you know as things stand the UK exiting the EU is not necessarily that detrimental to Steinoff's business so you know with a share price down in excess of sort of 12% in two days uh, in Friday and, 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 and Monday's trade so far um, you know you've got to think that that creates somewhat of an opportunity and then we've obviously mentioned British American Tobacco we've mentioned Old Mutual um, you know and I think there's a number of, of good Rand Hedge industrial counters um, you know which, which have the exposure offshore uh, which you know Nepi is another example that comes to mind you know pr- pr- provided um, you know Eastern Europe which is where their focus is provided there isn't too much more volatility uh, from the political side within Europe um, you know the, the, the sell off we've seen in that business could create some 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 buying opportunities so fundamentally um, you know we're starting to see some good quality companies on the JC some good quality companies uh, globally for that matter uh, selling off on the back of this Brexit vote and uh, you know that th- those could present more attractive multiples of forward earnings to enter these stocks because fundamentally the earnings outlook for these businesses haven't changed all that much um, you know another great example would be if you took Naspers I mean Naspers has almost zero to do with whether the UK is within the European is within the European Union or not they're de- deriving all their growth from the online consumption boom in China and that story continues to remain intact for 10 cents yet we see the share price under some pressure so far this month so a number of buying opportunities coming up Hannah but you've got to have the the, the, the risk appetite and you've got to have the time frame to endure the short-term volatility because as long as uh, you know we're in a risk-off environment and as long as the gold price is doing well and as long as bonds continue to witness inflows um, you know in the short term as markets remain sentiment driven these stocks can continue to be very volatile but over the longer term this does undoubtedly create a more attractive entry point. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on banking stocks now we've seen of course global banks uh, significantly hit by Brexit but our local banks have not been spared either Investec really bearing the brunt of that because of its exposure to the UK economy but broadly Mm. speaking South Africa's banks uh, have come under pressure in the last few months not really related to Brexit certainly before Brexit and there is some debate as to whether banks are cheap at these levels and offering good long-term value with favorable dividend policies or whether they're discounted for a very good reason because of the risks that they are fundamentally exposed to by being uh, exposed to the South African economy what are your thoughts yeah, Hannah, you know, the, this is where the debate gets interesting because, you know, everybody wants to own the good quality stocks. You know, the, the, the guys who are growing earnings north of 20 times and the guys who have attractive runways in front of them in terms of growing their earnings base, um, you know. and but, but unfortunately, there's no such thing as a free lunch, you know. And I think uh, you before the Brexit scenario, you are really paying up for that kind of attractive growth qualities. I think the banking sector, you know, is probably on the other end of the spectrum where valuation 
situation is very, very favorable. I mean, if you know, if we take Barclays as an example, Barclays Africa, I refer to as an example, I mean, you're trading on under nine times forward, um, you know, on something like a 7% dividend yield, you know, and uh, the, the Standard Bank is not very far away, f- away from that. And uh, first round has probably been the quality pick in the sector is probably a little bit more expensive than that, but not all that much more. And I think the biggest issue here is that the, the, these these stocks haven't been able to unlock value and sort of re-rate to a higher multiple because people are very concerned about um, you know its exposure to the South African economy. We all saw the first quarter GDP growth numbers. I mean, they were shocker with the, with the economy contracting 1.3% in the first quarter. Mm. Growth touted to be half a percent this year. Um, you know, not improving all that much into 2017 and 2018. So in this environment of very benign economic growth, we've got one th- we've got something happening with the banks. They they're not extending credit, um, you know, and if they're not extending credit, they're not growing their uh, interest income. And if they're not growing the interest income, they're not growing their top line as aggressively as what they want to. And the banks who are extending credit, the question is that, you know, what's the impairment going to be on that credit? You know, what's the non-performing loans that these banks going to be? Um, you know, I think the argument is now they are trading exceptionally cheaply, um, you know, so they possibly better quality businesses than some of the mining businesses we see who are very, very leveraged the underlying commodity prices. What we do see in our banks is that they are fairly well capitalized. So, um, you know, I'm not going to be touting the fact that if non-performing loans go up to 8 or 9%, they're going to be okay. But certainly if non-performing loans go up sort of half a percent or so to about 4%, most of the banks will be able to absorb that shock given how well capitalized they are and given their, their, their very strong dividend yields. So, you know, you really are being compensated for being in stocks which don't have a very attractive um, long-term growth story given the the, the, the path of the South African economy. Um, But, you know, there's many people who are arguing that they are in a value trap and, you know, this, this Brexit vote fundamentally is bad for our growth because we know the UK is a very big trading partner. We know the EU is a very big trading partner. And with companies there putting spending on hold massively, um, you know, one must ask what's that going to do to South African economic growth? And it's very early to tell whether it's going to be positive or negative for economic growth because we look at factors like, um, you know, if the UK can't achieve favorable terms of trade with the rest of Europe, are they going to look elsewhere in the world to, to be receiving that? But, you know, it's still very early to come to those conclusions. So I think, yes, there, are, there is some risk embedded in banks, but uh, you know, at eight and a half times forward and seven dividend yields for the cheapest banks and not much worse for um, you know, the, the better quality, more pricey banks, um, there is an argument to, be ha- to have some exposure into the portfolio, but you have to understand the risks that they are going to be very sentiment driven with regards to the South African economic growth story over the short term. Does 27.4 have exposure to banks? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, no? we have exposure to fund managers who have exposure yes. to banks. Yes, okay. so we do have exposure to value in our portfolios because we do believe that banks are fundamentally part of um, the, the value bucket in the market because at these valuations, you simply can't ignore it. You know, you, you don't need much for, um, you know, a re-rating to occur in these banks. And if they if they move from sort of an eight, for, eight forward multiple to a 10 forward multiple, you know, that's quite a substantial move in the share price, particularly given um, the strong dividend yields they are and you know how well capitalized they are so yes we do have exposure to the value end of the market um, and we probably slightly overweight uh, benchmark with regards to that uh, has 27.4 changed any of its exposures off the back of brexit 
No, so we haven't changed <laughs> any of our exposures in the last two days. Um, you know, I think trading events like this is you're just going to end up on the wrong side of it. You know, you, you're never going to get it right. Um, you know, pretty much, uh, you know, five hours before the the, the, the British citizens went to the polls, um, you know, the, the the consensus view was that you know the UK is going to remain in the EU, and we saw, um, you know, throughout last week up until Thursday, we saw, um, you know, strong relief rally, um, meaning that uh, you know p- the, the, the global markets were pricing in the UK remaining in the EU and we saw quite a nice rally in stock prices globally and on the JSE. So, you know, tr- trying to trade these events is exceptionally difficult to get the timing right, you know. So, you've got to have a long-term view. Um, you've got to have reasoning for your long-term view and you've got to fundamentally stick to that or, you know, chopping and changing is just uh, over the long-term just going to destroy value. Absolutely, and that's good advice for any panicky investor Investors out there, Nadir, generally speaking, what sorts of returns do you think investors can realistically expect to earn from the local equity market this year? Yeah, you know, Hannah, it's a, it's, it's, it's a difficult one because uh, w- if we break down equity returns, what do we have? We have, you've either got to have earnings growth, you've got to have uh, multiple uh, re-rating. So in other words, going, for example, from a 20 PE to a 25 PE, or three, you've got to, you've got to have dividend growth. So where do we sit on the JSC? You know, we've got a lot of companies who've got um, a lot of cash on their balance sheet, historically high levels of cash, somewhere in the region of about 730 billion uh, rand of cash on JSC corporate balance sheets. Um, so they're not willing to spend that cash, which means that it's very difficult to see where earnings growth is going to come from. Um, you know, at 20 times forward earnings, possibly slightly below that, um, given the recent volatility we've seen, um, it's hard to see how multiple expansion is going to come about. And, um, you know, we've got a dividend yield at the moment of under 3%. So, you know, if corporates decide to declare special dividends to pay out that cash on their balance sheet, we could potentially see that, um, that dividend uplift or dividend yield uplift and some uh, providing some tailwinds to returns. Uh, but certainly our base case is not the 20 plus no- north of 20% returns we've seen from the local equity markets um, you know, consistently ever since the end of the global financial crisis. We sort of, um, in more defensive mode, sort of going to see um, mid-single digit to very low double-digit returns um, over the next 12 months, probably edging more towards um, high single-digit uh, returns over the next 12 months. And, you know, in that environment, um, you know, we're looking to scale back risk. Certainly after the big sell-off we've seen now, uh, we're going to be looking at the equity markets more closely and seeing if there is an opportunity to deploy more capital and in what part of the market that's going to be more appropriate as soon as the dust settles. Um, but certainly our base case scenario is not for north of, uh, you, you know, f- 15% returns, which we've seen consistently ever since the end of the global financial crisis. So more consolidation mode and looking for high single-digit uh, returns from the local equity market for the foreseeable future. Adir Token is investment strategist at 274 Investment Managers.